2: Live from Alterspeed Technologies, the Ask Noah Show starts right now. This is the show where we came to do all the things on Linux they said couldn't be done and take your questions on how to do the same. The phone lines, they're open this hour. To be a part of the program, it is a free call. 1-855-450-NOAH. That's 855-450-6624. Or send your emails to live at asknoahshow.com. My name is Noah. I am your host. Delighted to be here with you as another episode of the Ask Noah Show kicks off this hour. Joining me is my co-host, Mr. Steve Ovens. Welcome, sir. Greetings from a very rainy
0: South Dakota. Rainy, but at least not windy. You know what? I'll take the rain. We need it.
2: <laughs> and, and and stuff doesn't blow down. You don't have to clean up after the rain. It just goes into the sewer system.
0: Yeah, that's true. Well, mostly into our garden, but I'll take that too. That, there you go. See,
2: you got free water. It's saving you chores. God's saving you some chores. Okay. Hey. You can join the program live. We'd love to have you ask your questions or make your voice heard. Again, 855-450-NOAH. That's 1-855-450-6624. The email live at com. That's what Harvey did. He calls from Grand Forks. Hey, Harvey, welcome into the program.
1: Hey, good evening, gentlemen. Good to talk to you both once again. Say, I got a question about my, my Android phone. Um, I don't know if it's a Samsung thing or if it's an Android thing, but... Uh, Oh, when I don't use apps for a certain amount of time, Android will kill permissions to all of the apps or to those apps, and it's uh, kind of a problem because it is interfering with my card dev and Cal Dev uh, connections. And I go into the app settings, and there's a little button that says, I, "I don't know what the exact verbiage is, but it's something to the effect of don't don't kill this app after." it's been put to sleep or whatever. And I untick that box and everything, all those apps still get the permissions removed after a certain amount of time. Uh, do you know of any way to fix that? Or is this, do you know if it's an Android thing or if it's a specifically a Samsung thing?
2: So it's not a specifically, it's not a Samsung specific thing. I can tell you that that is a native feature of Android. Um, I believe that there is a way inside of settings and privacy under the permissions manager to tell it not to do that but it, if i if i was listening correctly it sounds like you tried that you told the phone don't disable permissions when these apps are not used correct and
1: it's still doing it yep
0: man that, I that sounds like a bug then because that there's a there's a settings in there that um, allows you to disable the the privacy permissions manager. So like if you go to your settings and then privacy, there's permissions manager, and then um, you can kind of muck around in there to train, change the different types of settings that are happening per application
2: on your phone. You know, I I wonder if. You couldn't maybe find a third-party app that would prevent those permissions from getting removed, Harvey.
1: Yeah, that could be, um, or maybe I'm just not looking in the right spot in my in my settings. That that could very well be.
2: So, I, I off the top of my head, I want to say it's settings and privacy is where you can tell it. To, to where you have to manually revoke those permissions where it won't do it automatically if it sits vacant, for, if it sits unused for a little bit. So, I, so okay, I just, I just did, a, I just did a, a, a quick search here. So by default, it's on for all apps, so you don't need to do anything. It'll just shut permissions off for apps, but you can go into the app settings, click on the desired app, and then inside of permissions, you can toggle on or off that feature. So it, if there was some global feature that you turned on or off, you might try doing it per the app that you want to keep running.
1: Yeah, that I did. I did go into each individual app. Uh, let me just go into one here. and It's the uh, the setting that I turned off was remove permissions if, if app is unused. Yep, yep. Yeah, That's and I, cre- I click it off on my CalDev and Dive connectors, and they still the app still get gets corrupted and then all my calendar and entries go away. So,
2: Well, here's the other thing you could do. <clears throat> the other thing you could do is if you go into uh, settings and then privacy, I think there's a global setting somewhere in there to shut off that feature entirely, in, unless it's something you wanted on certain, on, certain, on certain apps.
1: Yeah, I mean, it, in theory, it sounds like a great feature, but mm-hmm. I mean, If it keeps on killing some apps, I mean, it it renders Android completely useless for me. Uh, Yeah. Maybe a a better question is, you know, I have a NextCloud setup, which is where I I do all my calendar syncing and contact syncing. Um, Is there a better way to sync calendars and contacts? I'm going to hand that one over to Steve. Steve. I'm going to hand that one over to Steve.
0: Caldav and Carddav are what we use. Um, Although on, I know this doesn't help you specifically, but on the iPhone, um, its calendar does that natively. So you just kind of have to plug it in on, on Android. You actually have to get a third party one, or at least you used to, I don't know if the built-in one has gotten better because like you, I kind of did Caldav and Carddav and just didn't look back. Um, This particular problem hasn't bit me in those applications. Um, I definitely see applications getting this notification from time to time. So, um, and I have just a stock Android device. So um, I understand, I understand your plight. I just haven't been bit by this particular Cardav Caldav issue.
2: We'll dig into it a little bit more, Harvey. It's, it is a native feature of Android 11. And so the box that you're checking is, the. <laughs> it's the right box It that should have the your intent that is the that that should be the way to solve your problem um and it's not and i i suspect that is some sort of a bug um but i'll do a little bit of digging and see if i can't find something and and get back to you on that
1: okay yeah that'd be great
2: Thanks for the call, Harvey. I appreciate it. Again, 855-450-NOAH. That's 1-855-450-6624. The email live at asknoahshow.com. So if you have an Android phone and you know something about this, please write in because we would love, love to hear from you. Hey, we want to make a plug. Again, we are looking for your feedback. So when you have questions, this hour, Steve and I are going to dig in and give you an introduction into home automation. And so if you have other topics or suggestions or questions, please send them in to live at AskNoahShow.com. Also want to make a play plug for Scale, which is coming up in 2022, July 18th through, or 28th, excuse me, through the 34, through the 31st. That will be at the Hilton Los Angeles Airport in Los Angeles coming up at the end of this week. And also we'll be interviewing Chris from Mycroft. That'll be towards the end of August. So if you have questions for that, we invite you to send those in to live at AskNoahShow.com.
1: From the Linux Newswire newsroom, this is the Week in Review with JT.
3: Samsung has released a set of Linux kernel patches for enabling their Trinity Neural Processing Unit, NPU, hardware as accelerators found within some of their embedded systems. The new Asahi Linux release has brought support for Apple M1 Ultra and M2 CPUs. Epic Games has finally released a full proper download of the Unreal Engine for Linux developers. Previously, to use the Unreal Engine on Linux, you would have to compile it from source yourself. NVIDIA AI Enterprise first became generally available in August of 2021 as a collection of supported AI and machine learning tools that run well on NVIDIA's hardware. In the new release, a core component of the software suite is an updated set of supported versions of popular open source tools, including PyTorch and TensorFlow. The new NVIDIA TAU 2205 Low-code and no-code toolkit for computer vision and speech applications is also included, as is the 2204 update for NVIDIA RAPID's open-source libraries for running data science pipelines on GPUs. According to a report which surveyed over 1,400 application developers and IT, operations and business management professionals globally, despite being somewhat satisfied, 44% of developers were still eyeing their job options. Only 46% of respondents said that they were satisfied with their current role. Almost 43% of the respondents cited improved career path options as the reason for looking for new jobs, in contrast to just 24% who cited the same reason in an earlier survey in 2021. Nearly 38% of respondents said that they would consider leaving their current position for an opportunity where they received proper mentorship, whereas 30% of respondents voted in favor of a workplace that offered greater access to training and certifications. LibreOffice 7.35 Community, the fifth minor release of the LibreOffice 7.3 family, which is targeted at personal productivity users, is now available for download. Canonical has released LiteDM 1.32. An NSCDE 2.2 is out for those that prefer a more retro-commercial Unix desktop aesthetic. (音楽) We'll be right back.
2: Automation has come up a number of times on this program, but Steve and I wanted to dig in and really talk about getting started with home automation. You can get lost in the weeds pretty quick. And so we wanted to give you a easily digestible introduction to home automation. And so I I guess, Steve, let's start with kind of, uh, let's start start at the beginning. Why do we do this? Why are people doing this?
0: I would start by talking about the purpose of this? Why do this? So a lot of people get interested in home automation for various reasons. Some people think that it's going to save them power or money or things of that nature. And some people do it for the technology of it. And there are some people that like to do it because they, you know, they just want to geek out. And other people think that there's a convenience act like factor involved there. And then I'd say there's probably a small minority of people that might do it for security reasons. So I think the interesting discussion here is when you start to think about the energy savings. So a lot of people, when they talk about wanting to do home automation, they're thinking about turning lights on and off or, or those sorts of things and how they can actually improve I guess their environmental footprint, for lack of a better way of putting it. And you absolutely can do that. I think that that reasoning is very interesting, but you have to be careful about the types of devices that you're going to buy. Because, for example, if you go and put a bunch of smart bulbs around in your house, they're probably not going to save you the kind of energy that you think, because they have to have a modicum of power in order for the radio to be active. So it doesn't matter if it's... Zigbee or Z-Wave or Wi-Fi, all of these things have to have some amount of power to them. So I think that you need to be clear about what your goal is. If, if your goal is, say, power saving, then you can do things like switches in the wall, like your Lutron switches or, you know, the Z-Wave switches, because those can control a host of devices behind it and still save some power, because there's only one device kind of sipping power off of the, off of your grid. So you got to be really careful. Um, For myself, honestly, part of it was the, just the annoyance of having things on. I would say to save a little bit of, of electricity was definitely an idea in the back of my head, but it was more about how do I, how do I automate things so that I don't have to remember to turn the light off or leave the fan running or, or any number of those things and kind of spidered out. What do you
2: think was one of the reasons that you got into home automation? So I first got into automation actually really when I was still a kid at my parents' house. I went to Radio Shack, and I purchased for $99 an X10 automation kit. And for $100, you got two little smart plugs. And back then, a smart plug was a, it was a plug, and it had two dials on it. One dial had the letters like A through G. And the second dial had the numbers 1 through 9, and so you would pick a group and a channel, so like A1, A2, so on and so forth. The X10 system was limited insofar as you, once you set those channel IDs on the little boxes, you obviously had an upper limit of how many of them you could have, and so you had to do some thinking on you know, a one, what all is going to go on or off with a one. Okay. Well, these lights can be on that channel and these can be on that one. And these plugs can be on this one. They also included a little light switch that went into the wall and you could put it in there. And then you could control this either from a physical box with buttons on it, or you could load some special software. And there was a little USB dongle and the little USB device would allow it to talk to the rest of the X 10 things. So took it home, set it up, and I was enthralled with the fact that I could sit in my bedroom and turn the lights on and off for my computer. And for a long time, that was good enough. So I get to college and I move out and I move into a condo. And so I decided I was going to go all out and automate my condo with X10. So I go purchase a bunch of X10 equipment and I install it all throughout my condo. My then girlfriend, now wife, came over and what she explained to me or what she demonstrated really to me was that X 10 was really more of a glorified bad science project than it really was about a professional automation system. And when I say that it would do things. So for example, you would go into the bathroom and the buttons weren't traditional toggle buttons and they weren't even the nice, you know, like rectangular style push buttons that you would have nowadays. It was essentially, it looked like a little button that protruded out of a light switch and you would toggle it in or out. Um, And it wasn't a very professional or good-looking device, but the worst part was it didn't work all the time. So you'd push the button and sometimes a light would come on, sometimes it wouldn't. And it was more unreliable if you were using any sort of the remote devices. So if you wanted one of the little RF switches, that would turn the lights on and off. Uh, And so when when my wife and I bought our house together, essentially what she said was, if you're going to put automation stuff in, it has to work. And if it doesn't work, then you can't do it in the house because it just break, fundamentally breaks everything for me and we can't use the house. Um, and this is something I think you're going to hear come up in this discussion a lot because both Steve and I, uh, we're geeks and we're nerds and we like playing with toys, but we have this overriding spousal, spousal approval factor that has to be met. And if we're not able to meet it, then we don't get to play with the toys. So when I started looking at automation in our new house, I started looking at uh, Lutron, And really, I, I've, and I've said this on the show a couple of times, I try to find one place to dig into home automation and then you kind of, like you said, spider out from there. For me, it was lights. I really wanted to be able to control the lights for two reasons. One is I hate walking into a dark room. And the second thing is I don't like to have lights on if I'm not in the room. If there's nobody there, I don't want the lights on. And so being able to turn appliances or lights on and off power control seemed like a very reasonable place to start with home automation. Um, and so I did. And I, 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 start, I started with lights, got that up and running, and then expanded into home security and got the home security system tied in, then got uh, HVAC tied in. And within the last few years, the largest shift has been moving all of that to a central platform, a central controller, central automation controller That allows all of the systems to kind of talk together because up until then they were there were all of these individual automation systems, but you couldn't necessarily do one thing from the other. So if this light was on, you couldn't necessarily uh, say, hey, there's motion over here. So set the temperature to this or if the temperature is set to that, have these lights on. None of that existed. And so having an automation controller or a central platform to tie everything together uh, allows for some of that. Um, And that's been my most recent addition. But I when I when I got into installing the the Lutron lights, one of the one of the factors there was, in order to purchase them, I had to become a reseller, and so it worked out conveniently for me because I owned a company that I could do that under. So I just called Lutron up and said, "What do I have to do to become a reseller?" And they said, "Well, you have to buy X amount of thousands of dollars worth of stuff, and you have to uh, go through this class." And so I did, and that got me access to the proprietary software to uh, program the light switches. Uh, and then I, and it was also interesting because it kind of shaped some of my viewpoints on automation, which we'll get to in a little bit. Um, but that kind of got my foot in the door of, okay, now I was able to see for the first time what automation looks like when it's, when it's, you know, very high end professional products and they're set to do a specific thing and they do that thing very, very well. In that was, so that would have been 2007, 2008. Today, it's a totally different landscape, right? Because in 2008, nobody was really doing this. Very few people were doing it or, you know, maybe the upper echelon of very wealthy people were putting this in their homes, but most people weren't really talking about this. Nowadays, there are a bajillion products that are out there for all budgets and the reliability and the flexibility of these products, the reliability has gone through the roof, the flexibility has gone through the roof and the cost has plummeted. And so if I were to do it, all of this over today from scratch, I'd make very different decisions. And so Steve and I thought this might be a really great way to set up a segment to talk about getting started in home automation. So Steve, I know that you have um, some really refined viewpoints on automation and why people would want to automate and how you can leverage every ounce of essentially decision-making, you can automate that so that you're not having to interact with the system. The system is essentially anticipating what you or your family needs and then providing it to you almost as, for lack of a better way to say this, like a little digital servant.
0: I have very specific ideas of what automation actually means. Now, you can get partial automation. and What I mean by that is, oh, I've pushed a button and the button triggers multiple things. That's partial automation. That's not automation. In my view, automation is I walk into the room and some things happen where I didn't have to interact with the system at all. So before the show, Noah and I were talking about the Home Assistant dashboard. And I was saying, we pretty much don't use it. There, there's hmm. like one or two things that my wife logs in. We have a Roomba and I've got the Roomba plugged into Home Assistant. So her tab is almost always set to the Roomba. But that's about it because um, it's really hard to automate a Roomba like that. But aside from that, the house reacts to us like in large fashion. There are light sensors called lux sensors around the house. There are motion sensors. There are, in some cases, there are heat sensors around the house. Um, you know, there's humidity and all kinds of different sensors that are laid throughout the house, as well as weight sensors in different parts of the house to try and figure out is somebody in the room you know, is the TV on, is somebody sitting in the spot, all of those sorts of things um, that you can kind of derive, for example, you can know if someone's watching the TV in general, if it's not paused. So like when, for example, when Netflix pauses and says, are you there, your TV draws less power than it does when it's actually moving the pictures all around. Hmm. And so you can make some heuristics around the idea of like, so for example, I have an Nvidia Shield and my TV plugged into a power monitor. And when it's on one of those screens, it draws between 7 and 11 watts. When it's actually playing something, it jumps to 20 or 30 watts, depending on what it's playing. So you can get make a, a kind of an educated guess as to whether or not the TV is still, uh, someone's still using the TV if the picture is still going. And then you add to that a motion sensor in the room that's checking to see if something's moving and you add to that weight sensors that are under the seats to see if someone's actually sitting down and you can have a pretty good guess as to whether or not somebody's in the room. So, you know, information to me is not I've made a button on my phone and I've moved the button off the wall to my phone mm. and now I can click that. So,
2: do you, can you get into a little bit about Boolean and how that works? So, my understanding is that what we're trying to do is determine the likelihood that something is true or not true. And there are all sorts of creative ways that you can go about evaluating a particular question and act and answering that said question with an increased accuracy.
0: So the, the Boolean in this case is just true or false on or off And I use a couple of different ones for this. So, for example, there's a lot of people that if you read online, for example, the weight sensors, they go into some crazy formula to try and figure out if there's one or two people in the bed based on how much weight each person weighs and all this sort of stuff. I don't try to do anything fancy like that. I have two sensors on my wife's side of the bed and two sensors on my side of the bed. If they're greater than 10 kilos, one of us is sitting on that side of the bed or somebody mm. is sitting on our side of the bed because you know the dog doesn't weigh too much, neither do the kids. So uh, my oldest kid will trigger the weight sensor, for example. But that's all I need to know. I don't need to know who's in bed or which side of the bed they're on. All that I have to know is somebody's in bed. And so when that weight has been triggered for... I want to say 10 or 15 seconds, I can't remember what it is, I have a little Boolean that says someone's in bed, and it turns that to true. And so if that is true, it keeps the lights on. That way, your automation doesn't have to can- constantly be pulling the weight sensors. It just looks to see, is this true or false? And it allows you some flexibility where, um, for example, if you've got garage door sensors like I do, um, I have two different sensors. One of them actually tracks the distance between how far the the the, soni- the sonic sound goes from the garage ceiling to the floor and how long it takes to come back. And if it takes a shorter period of time, the garage door is obviously open because the sound is bouncing back quicker. So when for that, I just basically say, because there's always some variance in, in how far away it thinks it is. And like, if it's less than 75 centimeters, the door is open. Toggle door, the door open Boolean. And when that is on, that triggers a whole bunch of other stuff, like turn off the heater in the garage, or, uh, we have something that, that basically sends us a ping after nine o'clock if the garage door is open. And it's not pulling that, that sensor. It's just asking, is the Boolean turned to true? So that, that sort of stuff is quite handy for, uh, not having to remake the checks all the time.
2: Would you do this any differently if you were asked to go set up home assistant for, let's say, your sister's house or your parent's house or a friend of yours? Let's say a neighbor came over and said, Steve, I I I would really like to get into home automation, and you were going to go set up home assistant and some sensors or some lights. Would that change the approach that you take to home automation? It depends on the person. And the reason I
0: say that is because Uh, Surprisingly, my parents are pretty easygoing when it comes to adapting to our our home and how it automates. Whereas my in-laws, my mother-in-law kind of curses under her breath the entire time she's here. Uh, She's a little bit shorter, so she has some some trouble with, like, triggering the motion sensor while she's sitting at the kitchen table. Um, But because the house doesn't react exactly the way that she thinks it should react, it kind of annoys her. Mm. Uh, So... The, the way that you might automate the house is uh, it's highly personal, honestly. The way that, that we like things to act and interact with us might be different the way, you know, you and Sarah like to have your house set up.
2: Very true. So I want to dig into that for a little bit if I can. So one of the things that I got out of one of the classes that I took when I was doing, um, becoming certified to install some of this stuff, uh, some of those concepts, regardless of the brand of the class, you can carry those concepts, right? So one of the things they talked about and now, granted, they were talking specifically about installing lighting stuff in commercial buildings. So they were talking about conference rooms and, um, you know, event style rooms. If you've ever been to like a ballroom or been at a wedding at, a, at an event center, st- stuff like that. What What does automation in those kind of places look like? And they gave some general tips like always have if you have five buttons on the wall, the top button should have the brightest light scene, the bottom button should have the lowest light scene or off, because by default, if somebody doesn't know what they're doing, they want to turn the lights on, they're going to go towards the top of the the the, the control surface. If they want to turn lights off, they'll go towards the bottom of the control surface. Uh, they. The other thing that I was taught is to avoid, to the extent you can, very esoteric automations, because as you pointed out, they will confuse non-technical people. I think where the difference in our mindset is, and I think it's a healthy difference. I think it's a good difference. And I think the dialogue would really give you, the listener who's listening to this, some insight as to what direction you want to go. The advantage of your approach, Steve, you have a far more refined custom experience, right? It's almost as if your house knows you and knows what you like and knows how to serve you when you're in your home. Whereas for me, Home automation has become a point of control. It extends uh, it extends and enhances the control that I had previously with regular light switches or regular interfaces. So instead of going to all of these individual things and touching them, I have one central place to kind of command central, as it, as it were. And so I can see my security cameras. I can unlock the door. I can turn the lights on and off all from one place. To me, those kinds of things are very helpful automation, and it is. It's a little bit different than 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 the way that you have it set up, and I think part of that might be driven from my spousal approval factor. So if the house does something that my wife doesn't anticipate, uh, she does not appreciate that, and and then she'll say, "Hey, you know, I was I was doing this, and I just walked into this room, and then this happened, and I don't like that. I want to know, you know, when I is the first thing she asked when we put all when we put Home Assistant in." is there a way that you can give me a button that I push the button and it just shuts everything off? I want all the automations to go off. So when you're out of town or when you're gone, I can just push the button and then, and it kills all of the automations. And so we were able to do that. I was able to set up a button and then in home assistant, go in and tell it, here's an automation when this light is active. None of these as a condition, none of these automations fire. Um, But what was interesting about that, Steve, once I gave her that button, she didn't want to use it anymore. Um, and I think it was part of just that apprehension of my house is going to become more complicated than I can wrangle. <laughs> but then over time, you know, she starts using it as, well. It is really nice to be able to tell, set the temperature, you know, from the bed or to be able to set this or hit one button and all of these things change all at one time.
0: Yeah, I can, I can definitely see that and I can understand that. I think that. Part of, part of what was developed in our house is it was a, it was a co development. So I was learning when I first started doing automation, I built my own sensors. Like I ordered all the parts from China because in Canada you couldn't, there was literally nowhere I could go to buy most of my parts. Some of, some of it I could, like I could go and buy, you know, um, capacitors and stuff like that locally, but Mm -hmm. some of the more special things for doing sensors had to come from it could have come from the US, but it ended up being cheaper to come from China, but be that as it may. So I would build these sensors and then I'd be like, okay, so what would you like this to do when you walk in the room? What do you want to happen? Here's a set of light strips over your over your computer to help you with the lighting. What would you like them to do? What color would you like them to be? How would you like this to react? You know, so I I treated her like, you know, I'm putting in home automation. You tell me what you want things to do. So when she walks in the room, how do things react, and how long do the lights stay on, and you know those sorts of things. So she was she was as much as involved with in the design as I was. I just happened to do all of the
2: programming for it and the the building of the sensors. So in a way, kind of your wife or your family kind of became the client you were building this solution for, and you could kind of use them to enlighten your path on here's what I here's the path I should go down. That seems very exciting to her. She's very she seems very happy and receptive to this that I'm not getting such a warm welcome on. Maybe I should stray away from that.
0: Yeah, that's exactly what I was thinking. I I treated my wife like the client and uh, she let me know when things were not (laughs) going the way she wanted them to. Um, And so because of that, she never asked for a button to turn things off. Um and part of that is because we don't interact with anything, right? You just walk around and the house does stuff when you walk through. So there there's no reason to have a button that disables things because you know, you walk in a room, and the light turns on and if it's past 10:30 at night, it turns it to 25% brightness so it doesn't blind you or you know like all of those sorts of things.
2: Yeah. That's that's very cool. So if 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 there's somebody else listening to this, Steve, and they're going through this process, what kind of insight would you give somebody if they were starting today as far as working with their family member? Maybe I'll even at tack on maybe the family member isn't particularly receptive. Maybe the husband or wife uh, is saying, I'm not so on board with this. What would be some general tips in a way that you could introduce home automation that isn't? Overbearing because your wife isn't like my wife, not terribly technical. They're they're very intelligent women. Uh, they can figure things out, and they're willing to accept technology because they married us. But you know, it's not an innate interest.
0: Yeah, so I'll talk about my mom, who's a luddite, like through and through. She, <laughs> so she was a registered nurse, and when they brought in BlackBerry, she's like, "That's it, I quit." Um, she's wow, I like, am not, not doing this, um, and so. She know what yeah. you do for a living? Yes, she does. Okay. Um <laughs> and of course my dad is also um highly interested in computers. He's he's got uh I don't know three or four computers on his desk in his office uh, although he's an accountant. But so my mom is pretty much a Luddite. She won't even really work the TV like if she pushes the power button and it doesn't have what she wants, she turns it off. So like um what I did for her is I just went and looked to see well, what is useful for her? So she had a, a, she's got a closet in the basement where her vacuum cleaner is. But because of the way the closet is set up, it's behind the shelving. So you, both the light and the pull string to activate the light are behind the shelving where the vacuum cleaner sits, which means you have to go seven feet into a dark closet because it's underneath the stairs in the basement, uh, to get things. And so what I did was I put a smart bulb in there and, and I made, Myself a door sensor. So the door opens, the light goes on. When the door closes, the light goes off. She doesn't have to go find the pull string anymore. And just things like that were, where it makes life better. You know, um, turning on a light, like having a motion sensor and turning the lights on when you're going to walk down the stairs in the middle of the night by having like LED strip down the stairs. That's useful, especially in the houses where you have a staircase where there are no lights. Um, just things like that where if it doesn't work it's not the end of the world the pull string is still there you know if the the lights on the stairs don't work well you're no further behind than you were when you started so you know you start with non critical things that just help to improve things and then we move from that to putting a small light inside of the the coat armoire thing at the front door so you open it up and then a light comes on so you can see where your jackets are like just just things like that um, so this is really
2: interesting to me. We talk about this at AltaSpeed a lot. You know, as technical people, we'll sit inside of what we call the sandbox and, and, and dev on something or hack on something and we'll come up with a solution like, hey, this fixes this problem. Oftentimes though, not often, but sometimes what'll happen is we'll get so interested in a particular piece of technology or a particular implementation of a piece of technology that we skate away from what we should be doing, which is solving existing problems. And what I hear when you tell me that story, Steve, is you went to your mom who had a problem and you offered her a solution to her problem. It just happened to be automation. It wasn't let's automate for the sake of automating. It's let's automate so that we can fix this problem. You won't walk into a dark closet anymore.
0: Yep. So they have a Raspberry Pi 4 that has not been updated in... I don't know, three years, <laughs> because all it does, I mean, it's a home assistant, but all it does is turn that light on and all those two lights on and off. That That's it, you know, but it's it's enough that it was uh, interesting and useful for them, but not so much that it was overbearing. Like, they don't even think about the fact that there's automation in their house or that home assistant's even controlling it. Just, you know, that Raspberry Pi and that
2: SSD is sitting down there chugging away. Absolutely. So let's dig dig into the little bit of the meat and potatoes of this. So we've you're sitting down in front of your computer, and somebody is out there listening to this, and they're saying to themselves, "Okay, I'm on board. I want to get started with home automation. I don't even know where to begin." So we want some way for these devices to talk to each other and talk to. We talked a little bit about that central control point or that automation system, the thing that ties everything together, an automation controller of sorts. And there's a number of different ways to crack that nut, but we need some way for these devices to communicate. So the process that I've gone down, and again, I want to be very clear about this. The motivation here, if I was to do it today, if I was sitting down today as we record this podcast, and I said... I want to build the best automation system, I would approach it very differently. I would start with what players are out there, what manufacturers support the free and open source controllers, and then I would work out Words from that, because that since that's going to be my central control point anyway, I would want the best support for that, and I would also want to make sure that I have longevity in the way of, I'm going to get updates, I don't need proprietary software, it's going to work with or without an internet connection, those kinds of things. At the time that I did my house, that was not my driving factor. My driving factor was, who makes the best possible thing in each one of these categories, and then... Do they have some sort of interoperable standard that I can tie them together? So for lights, I went with Lutron. For audio, I went with Volumio. With security, I went with Honeywell. With access control, I went with uh, AXIS. With cameras, I went with AXIS. And all of these things, uh, HVAC control, I went with Honeywell again. And so all of these things in their own domain, if you're looking for thermostats, you have a hard time competing head-to-head with the Honeywell Red Link system. It's a very robust, very elegant HVAC control system that's specifically designed to work with. In our house. We have different zones. And so there's a pump that pumps hot water around the house and it comes out of radiators. And this allows you to have a thermostat in every separate room and you can change the temperature, um, or I can from the master bedroom take over all the thermostats and say I want the entire house to be this temperature, and it goes out and says nobody has local control of those thermostats. We're going to listen to the master. So that's all a function of Honeywell system, right? And then you step over to, you know, the Lutron side where they have software to program all of the light switches and all of the controllers and remotes, and they do uh, Sequoia shades. Um, so I can set lighting scenes what do i want the scene of the house or a particular room or a particular area to look like it goes through and sets all that up be it shutting the window drapes because it's during the day and turning on the lights or opening them up because it's you know late evening or early morning or something like that all of that can be automated from the sense that when i command a thing all of these different things happen and So about three years ago or four years ago, I started really digging into home automation or excuse me, home assistant specifically, which is one of those controllers that we're talking about. And what I liked about home assistant was it allowed me to say, hey, when I leave the house, I want to, you know, I hit a button to to turn off all of the lights or to leave to tell the house I'm leaving. And when I do that, I automatically want the thermostat to go to this. I want the lights to go to that. I want this to happen, this to happen, this to happen. And Home Assistant allowed me that control and flexibility. Um, So that was the that was kind of the method I used to uh, to 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 arrive here. Now the good side of that is. In, again, in each one of those domains, I never have any problems. Like, the HVAC system is flawless. It it does exactly what I would expect it to do controlling HVAC. Lights do the light things. I never, ever, ever miss a when you push a button, something doesn't happen. Or when I ask for something to happen, doesn't happen. None of that, all of that's really solid. The downside is, because each one of these things are proprietary in some way, or some of them are, I guess, you know, some of it's mixed, but, some of them are proprietary. It has posed a number of serious roadblocks. The the last one I ran into is I talked about the Red Link system a few times on the show. Somebody actually got a hold of me and said, hey, I went to purchase the Red Link system, and now Honeywell requires a cloud subscription in order to get the little network to, a controller to talk to other systems. Well, guess what problem you wouldn't be having if you had looked for an open source solution from the get-go or at least – a HVAC manufacturer that is interested in working with places like Home Assistant. You wouldn't have those problems. And so I can't under I can't stress enough or underline enough that I would probably follow a different approach today. But that was how I arrived at those protocols. So there's not one central thing each uh each, we'll call it section of the home automation, has its own language or its own way of talking and in its domain, it's very, very good and they're all interoperable and they all work with Home Assistant, but I, I'm not, I, I wouldn't say it's perfect.
0: So I guess I'd like to back up before I chat a little bit about protocols, I want to hit on something that, that I heard you talking about. Um, sure. When you're talking about if you did it today, you would probably try and go the open source route, essentially. Right. If I p- take some liberties with the paraphrase paraphrasing. So I thought I would chat a little bit about that, um, because honestly, that was the route that I went to begin with because I wanted okay. to build my own things. I'm a, so I'm a tinkerer by nature. I just I just am. Um, and I'm fortunate to have a wife that accepts the fact that I bought something worth $140 and I blew it up Um, (laughs) because I will do things like solder stuff and I'm kind of adventurous. So when, before talking about protocols, my main concern was how do I interact with this? So I, I had a very strict from the beginning, no cloud only access. So if it's cloud only, it doesn't go in my house. And as a general rule, if I can avoid it, cloud access is completely out. Now, there are some things where it turns out it was accidentally unavoidable, like the, the end phase Envoy system that I have for solar, uh, in the very, the very last firmware update went from having a local API to one that you can get a JWT token that ha- you have to renew every six months. So that was kind of annoying. I specifically bought the, this brand of Solar from the options I had available because it had a local API. It still does. It does work without the internet. You just happen to have, you have to have a JWT token that is valid now. So if you didn't get one before you lost internet connectivity or whatever, you know, I'm sorry. Now, the one advantage on that one, just as a quick aside, is that you can get your JWT token from any connected internet source. So you don't have to, like it, the box itself doesn't have to be internet connected in order for it to function. Um, I grabbed one off of my desktop, for example, and threw it at the the API and it took it just fine. So, you know, there you go. But anyways, getting back to it, um, because I'm a tinkerer and I was really interested in open source, particularly interested in Tasmoda, for the people that are uh, interested in open source firmware for uh, ESP boards. There's Tasmota and ESP Uh And there's a couple others as well, but those are the two big ones. I like Tasmota because it has a web interface and it allows you to kind of um, do things in real time, like click a button in the web interface and see the logs and all that sort of stuff. So getting back to the protocols then, uh, I started off with Wi-Fi for that reason, because the ESP chips... Um, when I started doing it, didn't have other options. So now they have Bluetooth and a few other options um for the higher end models. But I was working primarily with Wi-Fi because of the open source firmware that I got, or could have access to, how about I put it that way. I started to work my way backwards into other things. And I took a peek at ZigBee. Um, so I mean, I guess let me, let me back up. Wi-Fi here. Most people know are familiar with Wi-Fi. When you're getting into home automation and stuff like that, the most common frequency, uh, in fact, I haven't seen any 5 gigahertz, um, IoT devices because that requires far more power. So, uh, the vast, vast, vast majority are running on the 2.4 gigahertz spectrum. So just little, you know, just a note there. You're going to have to have that enabled on your router or access points. But, as for the other protocols, the other two big one there are three big protocols in homes in in the home automation sphere. There's Z Wave, Zigbee, and Wi-Fi. Now, myself personally, I have had a terrible time with Zigbee. I've had tons of this stuff, but my my experience has gone from having like a flaky uh, controller and no i i want to chat with you sometime about this i have a um a usb stick for my my zigbee okay stuff from, called a conbee and it's being passed through into the vm now i have a z wave stick that's the same thing but the zigbee one drops off if i reboot the vm like it's just gone uh and it has exhibited this regardless of which port it's on so you and i will have to tra- chat about trying to fix this and maybe we'll uh Tack this into a follow up somewhere. Absolutely. Um, but the, so the Zigbee, Zigbee works on the 2.4 gigahertz spectrum currently, and lots of people love it because it's, it's a cheap, um, it's, it's a cheap IoT device. This radio happens to be an open standard, which means that people can do whatever they want. In theory, it means that Zigbee should be interoperable. I stress in theory because Um, the example that I give, I stole, I stole this from somewhere on the internet. I don't know who said this, but the example here is Zigbee things can talk to each other. Like the communication can flow, but it's like driving up to a drive-thru and one person speaking English and the other person speaking Mandarin. You're, you can hear each other, but you have no idea what the other person's saying. Mm. And that's because, because it's open, the, the manufacturers can do whatever they want, without anybody enforcing it. So yes, you'll hear the signal, but Home Assistant or your your stick may have no idea what what the device is trying to communicate. So there's no guarantee that Zigbee is going to interop with each other. Now, there's this other thing called Matter that's, that's down the pipe and people are getting all hyped about it. Um, we're not going to talk about that because there's no no use speculating on something that hasn't really hit any kind of adoption threshold um, but the other stuff the one that I really do like is unfortunately proprietary it's the Z-Wave protocol um, it runs at the 900 megahertz and man is it solid like I listened to Noah talk about his Lutron lights and and that has been my experience with Z-Wave. Like anything that has, have any kind of critical importance, whether it's lights or garage or anything that just has to work all the time, go Z-Wave in this house because it just, it never fails. I've had Zigbee just, it just stops working or it misfires or it fires double or triple the signal for some reason or all kinds of weird things. And just as a, a little Zigbee rant, I, I don't just have one or two devices or one or two manufacturer. I've I've gone the gamut. I have motion sensors. I've got light sensors. I've got door sensors. I've got um, I've got heat sensors, and I've got them from ver. I I would say at least four or five different manufacturers, and they all do something weird once in a while. If there's any failure in my house, I guarantee it's related to a Zigbee thing just doing something ridiculous.
2: So, so if we can, can I, I want to dig into that a little bit. So, okay, we standardize on Z-Wave. What does that look like? I have a Raspberry Pi. I flashed Has- Home Assistant onto an SD card. I've plugged it in. Now, now now, what do I do? What 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 device do I buy? What switches do I buy? And how do I actually set the thing up?
0: Mm. So yeah, good point. Uh the protocols Z-Wave and Zigbee, they both have to have their own controller, which is just a USB stick that you plug in that has a little wire like an antenna for it. So um I I lots of people like the the Conbee for the Z or for the Zigbee connectivity. Um and I have one of those and like I said, I've had some intermittent problems. I've I've had 3 Four. I have had four different Zigbee, uh, USB sticks thinking that I must be doing something wrong or it's something I'm burning these radios out. Um, I have yet to find one that works particularly well. For the Z-Wave, um, USB stick, I actually have a Hub Z smart controller. Uh, they're like 50 bucks on Amazon. They have both the USB, or sorry, the Z-Wave and the Zigbee radios on them and Again, I switched off of that one because I thought it was something that I was doing, or that I burned the radio out because I use the Z-Wave one all the time. Like I had been reading that it is possible to to burn out one radio or the other if one if the opposite one is in constant use because Mm -hmm. of the heat that it generates. So I thought, oh well, maybe I just burned out the
2: Zigbee thing. That's not the case. Well, that's good. I mean, that's that's a step in the right direction. I. I, this is super interesting stuff, but unfortunately, I think we're going to have to call it a wrap here for this episode. It definitely deserves a part two. So I hope uh, if you're listening to this, I hope you'll come back next week and join us for part two for an introduction to home automation. I did want to circle back to one thing. So we had mentioned at the t- top of the episode that we are going to be having an interview uh, with Chris from Mycroft. So if you don't know what Mycroft is, it perfectly dovetails into what we're talking, doesn't it, Steve? You have a home automation system this is how you get voice control on that home automation system and we will have chris on we'll be able to ask him about what mycroft is doing in a privacy respecting way
0: yeah mycroft i guess a a quick summation is it's a competitor to the to the smart speakers that you know apple or google or amazon put out Um, and it's open source and it tries to be privacy respecting to the best of its abilities while remaining uh you know Perform it because if it does, if it's open source and it doesn't do what you like, or it doesn't cover at least eighty percent of the use cases, then what you know, it's it's not much good to people. So there's some compromises that have to be made for for all of the devices that you
2: have. But these guys are doing a great job because they have the op- they have the option of doing cloud based processing. They have the option of doing local based processing, and they're constantly iterating on getting the local side better. So if you're looking for a privacy respecting solution. This is probably your answer. And as Chris joins us, we invite you to ask those questions. You can post them. You can send them into live at or you can post them in the Geek Lab. Tag it with pound Mycroft. And that will add the questions to the question pool when we get to the interview with Chris. And the music in our ears means we're out of time. I hope you've enjoyed this segment. If you like it, you can head over to the show notes, podcast.asknoshow.com. That's where you'll find all of the articles and references that we use to make the show. You can follow us on Twitter, at Ask Noah Show. I'm at Colonel Linux. He's at Linux Ovens. We're back next Tuesday at 6 p.m. Central. AskNoahShow.com.